Hello and welcome. The Global Association of Risk Professionals, also known as GARP, has partnered with SAS to bring you a brand new podcast, The New Age of Risk Analytics, about the evolution of risk and finance integration into the new digital era. For our first episode, we spoke with John Shosted, Senior Director of Global Risk Consulting at SAS, about operationalizing AI and risk, where banks stand today. What brings you to GARP at our convention today? Let us know a little bit about your topic for the people who were unable to join us this morning. Sure. Well, the topic is artificial intelligence, and more specifically, what is the adoption rate, what kind of benefits are, are uh, the users perceiving and, and experiencing, and also what are some of the challenges. And it's a very broad topic. I'm covering a survey that GARP and SAS uh, did jointly uh, to get a perspective on how the industry is, is, is adapting artificial intelligence. Um, and then to talk through some use cases uh, to, to illustrate how artificial intelligence in various forms is starting to be readily used in, in finance and in risk. Thank you very much. What were some of the key takeaways and findings of the survey? Sure. Well, the, the big picture is that uh, artificial intelligence is being used today at a fairly high rate. And keep in mind, this was a global survey. So there's uh, a variety of different levels of adaptation, and we're seeing that across the different ways that uh, artificial intelligence can be used. But in general, a uh, very high level of use, and then looking forward in a three-year time frame, the expectation is for 80 plus percent usage rates across many of the, the areas of artificial intelligence in risk. What kind of companies participated? Uh, you know, was it was it just the multinational large corporations, or was it what, you know did we get to a community bank level? Yeah, so we had a wide range in terms of uh, size of institution. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% were $100 billion in assets and larger. We also had a, a similar number in, in smaller institutions. So we had a, a wide mix of institution size. We also had a good mix of level of management and or analyst in, in the organization. So I believe somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% or more were manager or above. And uh, so that tells me that we're getting to the decision makers. And we also had a fair number of analysts, which are the people who are, of course, getting their hands dirty in these projects and, and have a different perspective. So we had, we had a, a good, broad representation in the survey. What were the intents and the parameters of the survey? What was it that you were trying to explore and, and retrieve from this process? Well, I think we wanted to get to the fundamental question of to what extent and how is AI being used in risk today? And then what do people think uh, the future holds in terms of how AI is being used? So that was one fundamental objective. The other was really to talk about the, the benefits and the challenges and how in my talk, I talked about how we're overcoming some of the challenges, but in the survey itself, it was mainly about identifying the challenges. How did the results of the survey compare with your observation? What surprised you and what didn't? So what surprised me was the high level of use of AI today in credit scoring. It's a surprise only because that's where we would have the highest concerns around interpretability and bias. It's a natural area to use AI from a methodological perspective, but it is one area where some of the key challenges may delay implementation or make implementation more difficult. 
So I was surprised to see credit scoring being, I, I think, the second highest current use case um, just behind uh, process automation. Process automation, I understand. Credit scoring, I was surprised to see it as prevalent as it was. But then when you look at the question of, of uh, engagement in AI over a three-year time frame, credit scoring drops. It's still high, but it drops relative to some of the other use cases. So that that explains a little bit more to me that uh, we may have some geographic differences underlying this where some geographies where explainability or interpretability and bias are not necessarily at the forefront of concerns and there's there's more aggressiveness to use the technology. We may be seeing respondents from those geographies reporting use of AI and credit scoring, whereas as we look forward, those that aren't using it today maybe are going to be more inhibited in using it in the future. Okay, I want to get back to process automation in a minute, but I did want to talk about why do you think using AI for credit scoring is attractive to the people who do use it? And I want to talk a little bit more about the bias concerns, both what they are and what are ways to help mitigate that issue. So uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Katie Taylor, made a great point the other day in in a panel discussion Uh, where she pointed out that the models themselves aren't biased. It's really the bias lives in the data that is being used to estimate the models or or to bring the the coefficients forward. And so the the way, and and I should pause here and just say you've probably seen the headlines of, you know, very qualified people developing AI capabilities that end up inadvertently excluding large classes. And it all comes back to the data that was used to, to estimate the models. And so uh, the key is really to understand your data, to know it well, and to evaluate it uh, and evaluate it as it's evolving if you're using data that's regularly uh, refreshed. And from an in- interpretability perspective, there are capabilities that are emerging that uh, are easing this problem. But fundamentally, what you're needing to do is look at the data that's input, look at the data that's output, and stepping aside from the statistics, understand whether there's an economic story or an incentive story or or what is going on between the inputs and the outputs and does it make sense and does it hold up over time. Are there processes for contextualizing that data and evaluating those processes? Because that's, that's a much more human-intensive process, it seems to me, of, of somebody making decisions along the line of what data should be scrubbed and what shouldn't yeah. be. So now we're getting a little bit into maybe the overlap between process automation and uh, data cleaning and that sort of thing. And I, the key here really is that you can automate the calculation and evaluation of the data tremendously, but at the end of the day, a human being has to look at it and understand really what tolerances uh, the, the organization is willing to accept in terms of data uh, cleanliness, in terms of the potential for bias, et cetera. And so there's still judgment that has to be made. You can automate the generation of metrics, but those metrics still have to be evaluated and defended, and that's going to be a human job. One of the things you said this morning that was a big takeaway for me is there's a human behind every machine, (laughs) (laughs) which I, which, which I think is an important thing to remember as, as, as this process becomes in some cases intimidating for people to address. I wanted to talk about process automation in terms of what are the elements in which that's incorporated in terms of, you know, organization wide, where are we seeing that happen and where are we not 
seeing that happen. It's probably not happening at executive levels, for example. <laughs> we don't have a CEO bot yet. Right, right. Process automation can be very simple. Uh, really just using a computer to do something uh, that a person was doing before. And I, I think of an example, and this actually goes back 10 years ago when uh, I was working in a, a corporate treasury division. We had uh, a team of uh, about 20 accounting operations people who were taking a somewhat unique product we had, and every month they had to calculate the interest due to some of our uh, depositors in these unique products that hadn't been built into our systems. Well, that was pretty easy to automate, and we took a three-day process that was quite error-prone down to 45 seconds. And then again, you have the human review, making sure that things make sense, that there isn't some surprise. You can't just turn off the supervision of it. But this freed up, and again, there was a lot of fear that these people were going to lose their jobs. But no, it freed them up to do other judgment-related activities where their background and experience, again, going to the context, was very important. And so we went from a position of people hating a three-day process, but understanding that it was important to their job, to having a you know, one hour process with the supervision that allowed them to go use their intellectual capital to do other important things. And so I'm touching on a number of different themes here, but you get the idea that process automation doesn't necessarily just eliminate jobs. It doesn't eliminate judgment. Uh, it's a way of doing things more efficiently. I think that's a really important point and certainly an important point for our audience who are, you know, always looking at their career trajectories. And most of our audience will have a job 10, 15 years from now that isn't conceived of yet. And we, we've seen that throughout the history of risk, for sure, and certainly in the last 10 years, but with both technological change and the expansion of risk. I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to, more to what are the challenges of the career trajectories of the average risk professional in the face of AI and increasing automation? So one of the key challenges is just going to be staying current on what's going on. And the technology is evolving rapidly, but so are the practices around the adoption of the technology. The interpretability capabilities are evolving quickly. And one of the things I made a point of this morning was that you can reject AI for a particular use case, but you'd better revisit it six months from now. Because there are advances in interpretability, there are advances in overcoming a number of different types of challenges. And if you're not staying current on that, you're going to miss the bus. And so one challenge for people who are emerging today as risk professionals is just how do I stay current to the changing capabilities and, and the technologies themselves? Because what I've seen in my career is a real convergence between computer science, finance, and risk. And the, the folks that have very strong capabilities across those three areas are the ones that are the most valuable, the most productive in in their organizations. And so I think going forward, you're going to see even more of that. And then the real benefit is when you have people that have the capabilities technologically in the computer science and, and in the, the risk mathematics, I'll call it, the, the quantitative capability. But then they understand also the industry and the way the industry is evolving. And they understand the people side too, because we're going to be very challenged around model governance, model risk management, all of those things go to people interacting and, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, looking over each other's shoulders. And, and that takes people skills. So if you have the technological skills 
and you can stay up on that and you're developing understanding of your industry and you're not uh, neglecting the people aspect of it, uh, you're going to be very well-rounded and very much in demand. I think that's really great advice. I think one of the things that that we're going to see with a lot of professionals as they go through the course of their career in the next 20 years for sure is, again, as you say, there's not going to be an elimination of jobs, but there's going to be a shift in what those jobs are and how their time is allocated. In some cases, a shift of skill sets. I wondered if you could talk to both recruitment and retention, but also what do we do about people who have skills in one area and now have to shift and expand? Now, there's a lot of great quantitative risk managers out there who are going to have to understand both the people side and the and you know the computer science side as well. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the for an existing professional, say that maybe has a background, a statistics background, the the move from their background, let's say maybe they got 10, 20 years ago, to AI is relatively finite. They don't have to go and uh, spend an enormous amount of time re-educating themselves. Really, the AI technologies or, or methodologies. Uh, are a finite subset of uh, the, the broader aspect of what they learn. So there's there's a pretty clear career path. They can pick that up either uh, in working with vendors, self-study, working with organizations like GARP, that sort of thing. So there is a path for people who are already trained, you know, mid-career professionals. The younger people, you're already seeing educational curriculums evolve to incorporate more uh, the uh, either conceptual understanding or if it's a more uh, quantitative program, really the in-depth capabilities around not just the t- statistics, but the programming as well. And with open source R and Python and that sort of thing, it's very easy for students to get involved in this. Obviously, we make the SaaS software uh, available fairly liberally on campuses, and, and that platform is very deep in terms of AI capabilities. But there's we're going to see people evolve in their education where if if you used to go get an MBA and then jump into risk management, that MBA, you may reduce the amount of time you spend in your, uh, you know, required marketing course and spend more time in um, computer science related or, or statistical methods class. So that's the kind of evolution I expect to see. You talked this morning a little bit about the broadening of skills and jobs moving. You shared an anecdote this morning that I'd love for you to share for our listeners more broadly as well. Sure. And unfortunately, I uh, didn't capture this um, from a citation perspective, but I read an article about a Russian bank which had developed the automation of a lot of what the data scientists do today. And data scientists are essentially... Ten years ago, we would have called them statisticians. They now have a little bit of a tweak to their background, more more computer science oriented, and we call them data scientists. And and uh, but they're basically very knowledgeable about statistics, and they have programming capabilities. And so we talked about process automation. Well, this in this instance, the job of the data scientists around data preparation, data structuring, estimation of models, selection of models, all of that had been. Uh, automated. And as a result, there was a lot of fear that uh, the data scientists just emerging now in this area had already put themselves out of business, probably with the intent of going and being on the the beach where their computers did all the work. But, um, you know, that's really, well, it's a true story that we can 
automate any number of tasks, including the tasks of data scientists, it doesn't remove the knowledge base, the contextual understanding, and and positioning these capabilities to add value to the organization. So there will always be people that need to have these capabilities and these understandings because the machine, while it can learn, it's not going to make judgment decisions outside of a governance process. And that's where people will always have to understand the context, understand their industries, and and help the machines do the right thing. We're always going to need the humans to be the humans. That's right. right. (laughs) We can't get away from that. Indeed. Uh, It's it's nice to know that we're not replaceable in, in, in that element. Another thing that we talked about or, or that you, you touched on this morning that I, I wanted to address is, you know, you're going to have a lot of people coming into organizations with MBAs and this this new com- computer science and data science and uh, all of this excitement about new technologies. And you're going to have a lot of senior management who didn't have this as a part of their career trajectory. This is not, some of them are going to be excited about it. Some of them are going to be less interested in it. How do you obtain the buy-in from senior management and how do you quell some of the personalities that are uncomfortable with such a major shift in perspective? That's an excellent question. And we did see in the survey that understanding of senior management and buy-in by senior management were material challenges and concerns in the adoption of AI. I've seen it in my career um, working with uh, credit officers who were 10, 15 years older than me and were skeptical and uncomfortable with some of the methods that I might propose or or maybe working with. Uh, And it's really about education. And we can sometimes, those of us that work with numbers, we can rush into explanation in uh, numerical or empirical terms. And I think it's important to step back and make sure that the contextual understanding of what we're trying to do, what we achieve by automating and or bringing advanced quantitative capabilities to bear, uh, and provide assurance that in doing so, we're doing things more quickly, we're doing things at a larger scale, but we are able to control it. We are able to engage our minds and make uh, deliberate decisions and that we are able to do that in part because we're getting better information, better metrics, better signals from the data than we would have had before. And that's just the direction that lending and and consumer finance is going to be going. And the senior executives that are struggling with that today probably need to take some time to understand that better. If you're like me and you've got most of your career behind you, you can't stop learning. You know, you have to stay open. You have to keep uh, understanding what tools are emerging and how they can be used. And if you don't want to do that, probably now is a good time to maybe take a break. Take that package. Take take that golden parachute. (laughs) Obviously, change is important. But as you you say, it's, it's it's very important to educate and communicate people who are coming at it from that perspective who are resistant, um, which kind of brings us back a, a little bit to explainability. And it, it's, years ago, I worked at BlackRock. I wrote RFPs for investment management instruments. And as I would write these RFPs, I would think about the elements of building, say, a mortgage-backed security. This is a total mm-hmm. segue. But I remember going through and wondering, every time I would get frustrated in my job, I would think, 
none of this is as tedious as the person who has to go through every single mortgage and try and determine its credit worthiness. I thought that was like the most boring job that you could possibly have. Well, it turns out nobody was actually doing that job. So, and then we had a crisis. So, um, so that I always think of that as an example of, I had trust that there were people covering all elements of complex systems. One of the things that I, I think is a challenge when you come to AI is for people who are just ramping up on this concept and given that our sphere is risk, it is important for people to understand complex models and what elements are vulnerable and what elements are not. And how do we have people engaged in AI explain the complexity of this in a way that lands with and also invites the opportunity for monitoring and assessment from risk practitioners and executives. Can I address the crisis and the uh, mortgage underwriting question? Sure, I think if you that's want very to. So the the mortgage underwriting was well, there were technological advances, and in fact, the the securitization, uh, which was really about putting risk, tranching risk to make it more appetizing to people with different risk preferences and thereby actually adding value to the portfolio. And so the, the issuer could actually get uh, extract money from the transaction because they were adding value by breaking this up. There's, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And, and we were able to do it because of technological advances around, uh, you know, tracking the, the cash flows and, you know, reporting and that sort of thing. But the, the core loosening of credit standards and the, the kind of closing our minds or turning off our brains around underwriting, that didn't have much to do with technology at all. That was really driven by incentives and the, the opportunity that the securitization process brought to introduce risk that was not perceived into securities that today, I would say AI would give us a better opportunity to ferret out. So I think, I'm not, I don't mean to suggest by any means that AI would have prevented the crisis. But I think today with the AI technologies around you know, income estimation and we're, we're uh, automating and, and in fact improving uh, a number of capabilities around the underwriting process, whereas the fraud, um, the, the, you know, we don't have to worry as much about, uh, you know, no income situations uh, because we can estimate income, that sort of thing. So there are things that we have learned from the crisis that AI is making us better at. Uh, now, poor judgment around how big that uh, credit box should be, that's, you know, that's a human error, right? That's not a, a machine problem. But what we have seen AI do in the lending space is recognize people who are credit worthy, who might have otherwise been shut out, and also recognize, you know, the cases of fraud or, or other cases of folks that are not credit worthy that should not be beginning loan. So reducing risk in that regard. So I think AI, from the perspective of 
underwriting and lending is going to improve things quite a bit more than it's going to add risk. And it should give us a lot better real-time data, a lot better metrics around the, the evolution and growth of risk uh, or you know how risk is changing uh, as macroeconomic conditions change and that sort of thing. So I don't see a downside to using AI with the caveat that human beings always have to express preferences, they have to exercise judgment, and there's nothing about AI that is going to take that away. I, in some ways, I think it could add, I mean, in, in terms of underwriting, is I used to wonder about the underlying biases of evaluating those. And I have some experience learning about microfinance as well, and you find that people in, in emerging markets particularly women, are very good at repaying loans. And so it took somebody taking the amount of data to see that. But but artificial intelligence could evaluate all sorts of, you know, things that you might say if somebody comes from this neighborhood or if somebody comes from this background or they're of this age, there, there might be assumptions along with all kinds of things, whether they're, you know, gender background, geographical class status, uh, whether English is their first language, all of those things could ferret it out, but actual statistics can be evaluated in an, in, in a full-on reliability context. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes I wonder about that as, as a potential yeah. bonus. So uh, bringing in non-traditional data and unstructured data into the process, I think, is going to help. The challenge we're going to have is the, you know, and I was saying this this morning, the bias that uh, emerges in the use of some of these models is really, the source of it is the data. And if you think about it, uh, we, we need both the characteristics of the individual and, you know, collateral, you know, whatever's involved in the borrowing, but we also need to know an outcome to train the models, right? So we need to know if there's a default or a delinquency or a, a full payoff, what have you. And Measuring up the data between the outcome and the characteristics effectively so that you can train a model is going to be very important. Not getting surprised by uh, feature relationships that don't persist in the data as it's evolving very quickly will be important. And so this all goes back to the model governance question, the model risk management. So I, I think you're going to have to see technologically an integration of model governance, model risk management, as well as much better data evaluation and probably governance of the rigor of data evaluation as it's going into the training of these models, because that's where you're going to catch bias. You don't want to catch it after the fact. You want to catch it in the data before you get there. But there's no doubt that bringing in new data, learning more about uh, people can be helpful. We, of course, just have to balance that with data privacy and, and other concerns related to regulatory oversight of the process. I want to go back to explainability and you know how that impacts communication between, say, modelers and management and even up to board level. Boards of major financial institutions can consist of people who have no financial background at all. They can be high-level politicians or they can be, you know, entrepreneurs instead of bankers, et cetera, et cetera. So I've talked a lot about the sort of impact they can have on risk appetite of an organization. And there are going to be some who are very excited and think an organization should be on the forefront of change and technology. And then there are going to be some people who think this is all mumbo jumbo to me and therefore it puts us at risk. So I wonder if you could address some of that. Sure. 
What I would say fundamentally, first and foremost, is that no board member should feel uncomfortable asking questions about this technology. I don't know that the board member or the senior manager for that matter needs to understand the math and be able to do the proofs associated with uh, some of the theorems that, that underlie this. But most importantly, they should be able to ask questions and they should feel comfortable asking questions. From the flip side, if you're the person that is uh, implementing this or, or pushing for these capabilities, it is very easy to dismiss people that don't have a background and maybe struggle to understand what you're doing. The litmus test, from my perspective, isn't their education or their background or even their confidence about asking the question. The litmus test is, can you answer their question? And if you can't effectively answer their question, it doesn't matter what their background is. It's a good question, and you need to go back and think about it. And that gets to the explainability uh, somewhat in the sense that if we have results that are driving us to make business decisions, to put investor money at risk, to affect our treatment of customers, we have to be able to illustrate that we understand either indirectly or directly as we can with the model, the more traditional models, we need to be able to illustrate that we understand what are the driving factors that are putting a person's credit score in this area, which is based on our judgment, we make this decision about that score. If you can't explain it and you can't show the sensitivities around changes in characteristics and that sort of thing, then you know you really shouldn't be using it. And the board members, senior managers, audit, risk functions, whether they have the background or not, they should ask the questions and they should get good answers and those answers should be empirically supported. And if that's not the case, then from my perspective, the organization is taking risks it should. Thank you to John Shostad for speaking with us and to you for joining us for the inaugural episode of The New Age of Risk Analytics. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to be notified of future episodes and visit sas.com slash risk survey to download the report discussed here today.